nonetheless, there were so few of them, uh, that's not what it felt. Look, well, I am just so pumped to gather. That's what the church is meant to do. Now, I am loath to ever mention specific people by name because there are all kinds of people who serve in this church. Like we have, now Lance comes through in the week every week and he does gardening for us all and he looks after the plants and there are people coming in cleaning and there. However, I will make an exception and I do want to mention the work that Chris, Jerome and Rob McCracken have done for you all. That's... You may not be aware, but for those live stream services that you've all been a part of, at times they have been here after 10 o'clock at night, through the week, working full-time jobs, and here after 10 o'clock at night, getting that together for you guys. So it's been a huge effort, and so I'm very appreciative of the work that they have put in. Thank you. By the way, quick question, and um, uh, I'm banking on Marina here, hopefully. Did anyone listen to By the Rivers of Babylon, Boney M, through the week? Marina did, thank you. I may or may not have had it on repeat in my car for a while. Anyway, um, it, it is worth a listen just to hear a 70s disco track put to a psalm. Anyway, it, it's, yeah, kind of interesting. All right, let's get up to speed with what we're doing this morning. We are, if you're new, we're working through the Old Testament we're doing one book a week until we finish the Old Testament. And the reason we're doing that is a number of people in the church that I spoke to were a little unsure of the Old Testament and how it reveals Christ and, and how it all ties together. And so we're doing this overview through the Old Testament and we're just looking at three things every week. We're looking at what's its historical context, so where does it fit in the picture of the Old Testament story? What are its major themes? So what, are, what is it kind of driving at in its big picture? And how does it reveal Jesus? So we're going through every book and we're looking at those questions. Now, my preaching style is I don't stop and say now for this question, uh, but that's what we're kind of answering as we work our way through. So we've been working through and now we're up to Nehemiah. And so the journey up to this point is we've followed creation in Genesis, and then we've seen God choosing Abraham as his promised people. We've seen the captivity in Egypt. So we've gone through all of that into the promised land, and they conquer the promised land, and we're in the book of Judges now, and they live in the land, and, and of course they're continually unfaithful, and then we went through all of the kings, and then we went through the fact that Israel as one nation split into two, uh, and in the north they were called what? Israel, and in the south they were called? How many were in the south? Oh, look at this. You guys have been listening. I'll give you a little smiley stamp later, if I had one, teachers. Uh, anyway, um, and so that, that's been the story. And then because of their continual unfaithfulness, the northern ten tribes got completely wiped out by Assyria, and the southern two got carted off into captivity into Babylon. And then, so what's happened at this point? The Jews are in captivity in Babylon, and then Jerusalem, the city, the temple, everything, the, the walls around the city were leveled, raised to the ground. So there's absolutely nothing left but a wasteland and ruin. Now God stirred the heart of the king of Persia to allow the Jews to return to the promised land, to rebuild the temple, the, the central place of their worship. 
and yet we know for a fact that very few go. The fact is, it's predominantly priests and the poor who return to the promised land. Why? Well, we chatted about this last week in the book of Ezra. The reality is, life was comfortable in uh, Babylon. So people were doing well for themselves. They had a house, they had a business, and let's face it, the option was, stay in Babylon, comfortable job, or go back to the promised land, which is a wasteland. Now, that's, that's an interesting choice, isn't it? Step out in pursuit of God with no guarantees of survival, success, or anything, or stay in comfort under a foreign rule. Well, we know for a fact that about 50,000 chose to go out of a much, much bigger population. And so they go and they begin the work of rebuilding Jerusalem. And we know that the book of Ezra, Ezra was a scribe and a priest. So the book of Ezra is about the fact that Ezra comes and he wants to have this uh, restoration of the temple and restoration of the city and the wall built around biblical principles. And so the book of Ezra is about the spiritual rebuilding of the people of Israel. So that's really what last week was about. It's about the spiritual rebuilding of the people of Israel. And that's why I love the book of Ezra, because Ezra is a guy that I can identify with. If I was chatting to Ezra today, I would call him a theology nerd, right? That's who Ezra was. There wasn't a practical bone in Ezra's body, as far as we know. Everything about him that we read says that he spent his time studying the Word of the Lord. He was a theologian. He was a reader. He was a guy that you kind of got to uh, talk to you about the Bible, and he was a teacher of the Word. Long live the Ezras. We need them, don't we? Those people who just spend their time in books, and they're just bookworms, and they don't know how to turn the TV on, and they look at you like, oh, you saw the movie. I've read the book, and it's 20 times better. Now, that's me, by the way, every time. Now, so long live the Ezra's. However, however, we don't just need the Ezra's, do we? That's a fact, isn't it? We don't just need the Ezra's. Like, if I worked on your car for you, don't ever drive that car again, right? I'm not... I'm not mechanically minded. I have no idea about those things. Sometimes I like to pretend I do because guys get around and guys talk about cars. You know, the big thing that goes in this is going to make it so much better. And I'm just like, yeah, no idea what they're talking about at all, right? So, um, so we need the practical types as well. And so what we have here in our Bible is Ezra looking at the spiritual rebuild and Nehemiah looking at the practical rebuild. Aren't both things incredibly necessary in the church? Those who are word-focused, those who are practically minded. Now, of course, everyone should have some acknowledgement of the word. Everyone is capable of some practical work. I carried chairs around yesterday, right? Like, it's not that we can't all be a part of things, but we're gifted in certain ways. And that's what we need to remember, and that's what Nehemiah is about. So who is Nehemiah? He's the cupbearer to the king. Now, this was an incredibly important position because the cupbearer was the one who actually tasted every cup of wine that the king was served. In other words, he was the guy that would die from poison uh, if, if uh, someone tried to get in there. However, it was an incredibly important position because who had the opportunity to poison the king? 
yeah, the cupbearer. He was the one who could add something to it potentially. So it was an incredibly trusted, honoured position. It really put Nehemiah as a kind of CEO type under the king. High level management is who he is. Now Nehemiah had chosen not to return with the group that we read about here early on. He was staying right where he was and being involved uh, in Babylon. However, he is staying abreast of what's going on in Jerusalem. And the reality is he gets a report, we can read this in Nehemiah, he gets a report that things are going bad, that the gates haven't been rebuilt, that the wall hasn't been rebuilt, that the city in a practical... You've got Ezra there going, let's all follow the word of the Lord. No one's able to build anything, right? And so the whole place is still utterly waiting to be conquered again, to be smashed. And so Nehemiah hears this and he despairs. What does Jerusalem need at this point? They've got a spiritual leader in Ezra, but what do they need? They need a project manager. They need someone who's got the administrative nous, the practical nous, the leadership nous, to come in and actually get the practical job done. All right? So that is what the book of Nehemiah is about. This is a book for everyone in this church who is practically minded. If you're a tradie in the church or if you're uh, just practically minded in any way, man or woman, then this is the book for you to tell you that you are valuable to the work of God. All right? So this is the book for you. Ezra, uh, Nehemiah was not a scribe. He was not a priest. He's never called an expert in the law. He's a man with practical skills, with a heart for God, who will use those skills for God's glory. Right? That's who Nehemiah is. So Nehemiah 1, four. we're going to open up to. So just setting the scene of Nehemiah 1, four. He's just heard about the terrible state of Jerusalem, how it's not being rebuilt. Nehemiah 1.4, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. See, he's a godly man. He's a practical guy, but he's a godly man. And when he hears about the need that's going on, it breaks him. He breaks down in tears because he loves the promised land. He loves the temple. He loves what Jerusalem is meant to be. And so when he hears the words, he breaks down. And as a practical guy, as I said, he's still a godly guy. And where does he turn in his time of need? To God. He breaks down in fasting, in tears, in prayer. He seeks the Lord. It doesn't matter if you're a bookworm or you're a practical person. Our help comes from the same place. Amen? That's right. And so we turn to God regardless of, our, uh, of who we are. And so Nehemiah, through prayer, seeks the Lord and then he takes the bold step. He goes to the king as the cupbearer and says, I want you to fire me. I want to quit. And I want to head to Jerusalem and take over the rebuilding of everything. Now, this is a big move. This is not like a government position. This is back in the days of kings where if they are upset at you, they just remove your head. And so he's prepared to go and say, look, I know you've given me a good job and I know I'm in a trusted position, but I want out. 
Now, that's actually a courageous move. But Nehemiah is prepared to do it, and he is granted permission. Now, what are you going to do, though? How do you get a job like this done in quick fashion? Right? How do you build an entire city? I mean, you can't just hire some local people to do it. What, how do you go about it? And this is why we need someone like Nehemiah, practically minded. So to do that, I'm just going to quickly read a few verses. So you can bounce along with me, look them up later. This is Nehemiah 3, 1 to 4, 8, 12, and 31. All right, so you can look them up later if you need to. Nehemiah 3, 1 to 4, 8, 12, and 31. All right, 1 to 4. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set the doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred and as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hanasseh built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakoz, repaired. And next to him, Meshulam, the son of Bechariah, son of Meshabal, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Banna, repaired. Right, I'll skip to verse 8. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Uriah, goldsmiths, repaired. Next to him, Hazaniah, one of the perfumers, repaired. And they restored Jerusalem. Verse 12. Next to him, Shalem, the son of Halasheth, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired, he and his daughters. Verse 31. After him, Malachar, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants opposite the muster gate and to the upper chamber of the corner. I hope you are getting a little picture here. How do you undertake such a monumental task of rebuilding the city, of fortifying the walls, of getting this job done in a major way? And the answer under the direction of Nehemiah, who comes in as project supervisor, is many hands make light work. He gets everyone involved in building it. So we've got the goldsmiths involved. We've got perfumers involved. We've got a guy and his daughters involved. And they are all laboring together to rebuild Jerusalem. Isn't that awesome? They're all into it. Everyone's doing their bit. Everyone's carrying their load and helping rebuild the city. I love this picture. Now, I'm absolutely sure that Nehemiah would have, would have structured it. He was your project supervisor, and then I'm sure he's faced some tradies around the wall, because seriously, you probably don't get perfumers to go and build their section on their own, right? So he's probably spaced a few tradies around, and then under their supervision, everyone is carrying rock, doing what they need to do to rebuild the city. I absolutely love this. The picture we have is that no one is lazy. Everyone is involved and everyone is doing their part to restore the city. This, by the way, is a perfect illustration of the church. A perfect illustration of the church. There are no passengers in the church. To be a part of the church means you serve. If you attend but don't serve, you're not a part of the church. I'm sorry, but that's a fact. 
What is the body made up of? Members. And each member has a function. Right? So the church serves. It's what it does. In some capacity or another. And it looks different for different people. But we are members of the body and we each have a part to play. So if we take that picture from Nehemiah... I'm just going to uh, jump over to Ephesians 4, 11 to 12. Ephesians 4, 11 to 12, and it says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets and the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Why is he given pastor teachers to the church? To equip the church, to do the ministry, to do the job. Like seriously, how far can five elders go? Like if we were building that wall, how good are the five of us going to go? Some of us are probably more practical than others, but anyway, it's still an impossible task. No, our job is to equip the body for ministry. That's what the church is for. The role of an elder, I think, has best been likened to the conductor of an orchestra, right? They're steering the show, but everyone has to play their instrument, okay? And that is what the church is like. That's the body. Everyone must be involved. Now, I loved yesterday. We had a whole lot of volunteers here. Uh, There were stacks of people involved, and everyone was doing their bit. There were people cleaning there were people doing, uh, carrying chairs. There were people doing lots of stuff to serve the body, to be a part of the body. And this is fantastic. It's what the church is for. But it's also about each of us is called to carry our weight in the mission of the gospel. We've talked about this a lot, but we are all called to proclaim the good news. Go into the world telling everyone the good news of Jesus Christ, discipling them teaching them everything he commanded, right? We are all called to proclaim the good news. And so my job and the job of the elders is to teach you the gospel week in, week out, again and again and again until it bubbles out of you and you go and tell people. That's the church and that's the picture that we have in Nehemiah, right? Everyone doing their bit. I love this picture. And it gets even kind of more interesting for us to look at. So I'm going to look at Nehemiah 4, 2 to 3. Nehemiah 4, 2 to 3. That would be Ephesians I'm looking at, which is why it didn't make sense. Nehemiah 4, 2 to 3. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria... What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and said, Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down the stone wall. How good's ancient sass? Right? This is the surrounding nations. And they're looking at the perfumer and the jewelry maker going, <laughs> they're going to rebuild the city. Now, you know, I, I don't know if it's lost in translation. I think it still works. Like if Brent over here had built a house and I said to Brent, a fox could knock that down, 
I'm pretty sure that would be insulting, right? Yeah, you'd expect a bit more from a house than that. So, you know, that, there you go. It, it carries some weight. And that's what they were saying. They're like, what an absolute joke. What a laughing stock. Are these guys really going to be able to build the wall? And here's the point. We all have to do our bit. In the church, we all have to serve. We're all called to be faithful to the call of God in our lives. And yet, it's not about us. And this is what we have to remember, isn't it? Yes, we should serve. Yes, we should put in effort. Yes, we should work hard. But you don't bring the results. That remains in Christ's hands. So we serve and we work but the result is in Christ's hands. So really, should this group have been able to build a fortified city? Probably not. I mean, look at the bunch of people that were doing it, right? There's probably, you know, people doing all, holding the hammer by the wrong end, things like this. It was probably all over the place. And yet, the surrounding nations are laughing. Well, let's look at 4, 6 to 9. This is 4, 6 to 9. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sambalat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as protection against them day and night. <laughs> a fox could knock that thing over but God is in the building of the wall. And suddenly, guess what's happening? The wall's getting built. It's getting fortified, and the same people that are like a fox could knock that over are now panicking because God is in control. We work hard. We put our effort in, but God is the one who will bring the results. God is the one who brings fruit. And so when trouble comes, when difficulties come, what do they do? They pray. They turn to God. They look to God for the answer. And right now, they're working hard. They're doing what they should do. But on the flip side, when they hear about trouble, they turn to God. They pray and ask God for help. Again, we see the practical meshed in with the spiritual. They then post a guard. Right? Practical. Let's put some guards around their wall while we pray and seek the Lord. Work hard, seek God, and that is how we will see the fruit come. Okay, that is what we learn here from Nehemiah. Now, to continue that, they post the guard initially. This is really incredible stuff to us to learn from for a church. So let's go a little bit further. This is verse 16 and 18. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction. And half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah, who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. How good is this picture? Right? They're building the wall. They're doing the work they need to do. In one hand, they have a sword, and in the other hand, they have a trowel. Okay? In one hand, they have a sword. In the other hand, they have a trowel. Ready to build, and in the other hand, ready to defend. What incredible ministry uh, picture for us. Now, I'm not saying that 
yeah, Sunday school, have a sword. Uh, no, that's not the picture that we're taking from this. But their, their intention, their heart was to build first and foremost. Not to destroy. The whole idea was to build up. The sword was there for defense. Right? And that's the picture of biblical Christianity. We are called to build one another up in love, is what the Scripture says. The heart of every Christian is to build. Build one another up. Build bridges into our local community. Build safe places for the poor and oppressed. But also to have a sword ready to defend the poor and oppressed. To defend our beliefs. To defend our proclamation of the truth. To defend a persecuted brother and sister. Our heart is to build, and yet we are also ready to defend. Now, who's heard of Charles Haddon Spurgeon? If you haven't, you can just go now. No, sorry, that's not true. Uh, right, um, Charles Haddon Spurgeon is an absolute hero of mine. He was around <coughs> mid-1800s. He's called the Prince of Preachers. And so he was a preacher in England, in London, uh, like I said, in the mid-1800s. And basically, he helped... Most of the mainstream church at the time was heading towards liberalism. And God used this one man to kind of help pull the church back to biblical truth. So he's an incredible preacher of God's word. In fact, first ever mega church, he was having around 10,000 people coming to his church. His church newsletter was read by 100,000 people a week. How's that for a bulletin? Glenda's got a lot of photocopying to do, right? Um, 100,000 people a week, and yet... His newsletter was called what? The Sword and the Trowel. Straight from Nehemiah. This newsletter is called The Sword and the Trowel because Spurgeon believed with all his heart that Christians need to be uh, defending the truth but also on the offensive with the truth. That we both share and proclaim the gospel and defend the good news. And at the end of the first year of the publication of The Sword and the Trowel, he wrote this. We have striven to do the Lord's work to the best of our ability. And now we dedicate the year's volume to his service. Some good to our knowledge has already been achieved by its monthly issue. Sympathy has been enlisted for Christian em enterprises and assistance has been received for holy work. Saints have been cheered, workers animated, warriors armed and learners trained. Foes have felt the sword far more than they would care to confess. And friends have seen the work of the trowel on the walls of Zion to their joy and rejoicing. It is little that we can accomplish, but for that little we are devoutly grateful and desire to ascribe it all to him who works all our work in us. How good is that? Right? He got it. They worked hard. They were doing everything they could to get the truth out there. And their foes feel the sword of God's word. People know that the sword, the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. It can penetrate the most um, anti-God heart, can't it? The word of God can pe penetrate an atheist heart. It divides and it conquers the hardness. And the word of God brings people to their knees. And they defend the truth. And they argued for the truth and he fought liberalism and he fought against people turning away from the word of God and he felt the power of Christ and gave all glory to him. The sword and the trowel. All right, I'm going to uh, turn now to six 
uh, 15 to 16. 6, 15 to 16. So the war was finished on the 25th day of the month, Elul, in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Right? By the way, I've just been, as I've been working this through, I've figured out that I'm going to make sure I put all of these sections in there to read in your home groups, the ones with all those weird names. And just everyone report back to me how much people struggle. Don't, I have no idea how they're pronounced. I just say it confidently and, and then I hope you all think that I'm doing it right. But I seriously have no idea. Uh, anyway, that was definitely an aside. All right. How good is this? They achieved the building, the fortification of a city in 52 days. That's good going. They don't build houses in 52 days. They fortify this city in 52 days using perfume makers, jewelers, every other kind of skill you can talk about, scribes, bookworms, whatever it might be, and they build and fortify the city in 52 days. As I said, don't neglect. They worked hard. They got out of bed early. They got calluses on their hand, which then split open and bled. They got cuts, broken bones, probably fell off the wall. They did their work. But what makes it possible? God. Right? God is the one who drives it. God is the one who achieves the building of the wall in such a way that the surrounding nations, the ones who were like, a fox could knock that over, they're now terrified because they've seen what God can do. They're terrified because they realize the God who can use a bunch of unlikely people to achieve great things is a God to be reckoned with. Right? That's my prayer for our church, that when everyone looks at our church, they're like, well, that's a pretty useless mob. Not much to worry about there. Not much talent there. Pretty ordinary, basically. And then they see what God can do through you. And fear strikes. Fear of the Lord. That would bring them to their knees. Right? God can do amazing things through you if you serve him faithfully. Put in the work. Work hard. Work as for the Lord, the Bible says. Whatever job you have right now, if you're a teacher, if you're a stay-at-home mum, if you're a cheesemaker, I like that because I was born in Bega, where the cheese comes from. Anyway, um, whatever it is you are, do it for the Lord and the Lord can take what you do and use it for His glory. Right? Work for the Lord. The blessing of God, it's incredible what we might be able to achieve. With the blessing of God, we might be able to build this thing up more than we could ever imagine. With the sword and trowel of God's word and ministry, this church might continue to grow so much that we fill this place and we have to get a bigger, no, I don't want a bigger church, but maybe, maybe we have to plan a church and we send out a small group of people with a sword and a trowel. Group of people who we send out to do the work, uh, hard work of, of planning a church, the hard work of witnessing to their neighbours in that new place where there's not a lot of support, but with the sword of God's truth proclaiming the good news, we send them out and see what the Lord will do. Right? Isn't that our prayer? 
God can achieve if we work hard and trust Him is what we see in the book of Nehemiah. Now, churches normally preach Nehemiah when they've got a building program on. Right? Anyone ever been in church with a building program? They preach Nehemiah? Yep, hands are going up, right? I actually was preaching uh, about Nehemiah once years ago in a different church, and I said that, and I just saw someone crack up laughing in the back of the church. And so after the service, I had a chat to them, and they, they were a visitor, and they said, our church just announced a building program and that we're about to preach through Nehemiah. Uh, and I said, there you go, right? Because the book about everyone doing their bit, churches tend to trot it out. So anyway, next time you see us preaching through Nehemiah on the roster, heads up. We're either doing a building program, a church plant, something, I don't know. So there's, there's your warning, right? All right. Um, but how good is the picture of what we are called to be as a church? One quick story, because I just want you guys to grasp it. Back in, I've mentioned this before, probably in Gospel Church, the church uh, we planted back in Newcastle, we had a, a Muslim couple come to faith and they could never return home to uh, Iran because they had converted and given, been baptised as Christians and so they had lost family, they had lost everything basically and yet after becoming Christians they realised they should be married and so they came to me and they said, Sam we need to be married don't we? And I said, yeah you do. And they said, but we don't have anything. We've got no money. I said, don't worry about it. Right? The church put on the wedding. And it was incredible. Now, a little country church in this beautiful setting, they donated the building for us to use. Picturesque little old chapel in the middle of a, a sort of farming area. It was beautiful. They said, yep, come and use that. So we did the wedding there. Then we went back to someone's uh, acreage to do the wedding. And you've never seen one uh, lady in the church made 300 metres of bunting. Now, if you don't know what bunting is, ask your wife. I figured it out once Beth told me. But anyway, 300 metres of it and strung it between all of the trees around the whole place. And so when you walked in, there was all this lighting and there was bunting every... Oh, it looked stunning. And then other people put on all of the food and other people... So this wedding cost them what? Zero. It was incredible. People did their research and we had Iranian dancing, uh, traditional dancing. We had, it was amazing. And guess what? It was the whole church who pulled together and everyone said, I'll do this. I can cook, I'll do this. I can sew, I'll do this. I can, and the whole church made this incredible wedding happen. It's the same as Nehemiah, right? This is what we're called to do. Everyone does their bit for the glory of of God. In Nehemiah 8, we read of Ezra reading the law and of telling people of their convicted sins of the past, so on and so forth. So I won't spend time in that, uh, but obviously they overlap, Nehemiah and Ezra. Nehemiah is building the physical stuff, Ezra is laying down the spiritual law. We need both groups in the church, right? The practical-minded people, the, the theolo theologians as well. Now, where we're coming to to finish is Nehemiah 12 and the dedication of the wall. Because when you finish building a big wall, you should dedicate it with a celebration. And so we're going to turn to Nehemiah 12, and we're going to read 27 and then 43. Nehemiah 12, 27 and then 43. Nehemiah 12, 27. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem... 
They sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings, with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the districts around them, Jerusalem and from the villages. So look, they all gather together from everywhere. And in verse 43, and they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard from far away. How good is that, church? The joy of Jerusalem was heard from far away. Now, there is a time for being quiet and somber in worship. There's a time for reflection. There's also time for great joy in the church, amen? For a celebration here at Bundaberg Bible Church, which is so loud, there's like a farmer in Jinjin going, man, what's that, right? Because it's heard from far away. The praise, the joy of the Lord that comes through ministry. You want to experience genuine joy. I'll tell you a great way to do it. Get your hands dirty. Get worn out and tired in service of the Lord alongside your brothers and sisters. And when you're alongside your brothers and sisters and you work hard for Jesus to the point where you are exhausted, where you feel like you'd sleep for 72 hours when everything feels, but you finish the job God has called you to do, you will sit there with your brothers and sisters and know a deep and true satisfaction and joy for doing what the Lord has called you to do. Anyone here felt that at some time? Ministry and, and practical tasks? Yeah, there's a few of you. Seriously, get involved in it. Be a part of serving the Lord alongside people to the point where you've got nothing left to give. And I guarantee you, you will know a deep and satisfying joy that the Lord will give you. Did you note what our passage said? For God had made them rejoice with great joy. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. Don't get the wrong picture about God. Like I said, there is a time to be somber before the Lord. But God had made them crash cymbals together. If we get into that in detail, they get a couple of different choirs going together. It is loud. It is exuberant. There is dancing. And it's all because God had given them the heart to rejoice. God is a God of joy. He will give you this exuberant joy when you serve him faithfully. And then he gives the result, the fruit. We will know incredible joy in the church. Join together intellectuals, practical people, managers, young and old. Celebrate the goodness of Christ with great joy. So in closing, where is Jesus in Nehemiah? Look, there is a lot of places we could find Christ in Nehemiah. He is the one who is orchestrating the whole thing. He is the one who means that it does get finished. He is the one who brings the fear to the surrounding nations when they realize that God is in control, that God is giving the result. But the real place I just wanted to see Christ together this morning is in that finish, in that joy. They built a physical expression of God's blessing. They built a wall, they built a temple. 
and they have great joy that can be heard from far away. For each and every one of you, Jesus died for your sins. He was resurrected on the third day. He rebuilt the temple as he said he would after three days. And so he was resurrected. And in Christ, he gives you eternal life, forgiveness from sin forevermore. And he has made you the temple of God. He has indwelt you by his spirit. Here they are rejoicing because they built a physical wall around a city. And yet you are filled with the presence of God. I mean, seriously, if they can worship with joy because they built a city, how much more so because you are the temple, because Christ has filled you with great joy. This is why we read in Ephesians 5, 19 to 20, just really quickly, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Singing songs, making melody, letting, music, letting joy flow out of you is a response to what Christ has done for you. Right? That is who we are as the people of God. And right here, just when Christ uh, brought about rejoicing in Nehemiah, he should bring it about in us because that's our response, that we make music to one another. So, look, service is coming to a close now. Uh, I'm ending it. We don't have another song or anything like that. We have asked that you shuffle out pretty quickly because we have to clean and stuff. And by the way, the zones aren't supposed to mingle. So it probably needs to be like zone one. You can now leave zone two. I don't know. Anyway, um, that, that's the rules that we're sitting under for a few weeks, right? That's fine. But as Kelvin mentioned, uh, nominate right now. Just pick someone in your zone and go, right, you're having everyone over for lunch. And, uh, and, and go there and sing songs to one another. I don't care if you can sing. I can't sing. I'll sing one. Just sing praise to Jesus together because he has saved and redeemed you. He has made you his living temple. What joy we know as Christians. Amen? So Nehemiah, if you're practically minded, you have great use and service to the Lord. Use it for His glory. If you're academically minded and you're a bookworm, you have great use and service to the Lord. Use it for His glory. That is what Nehemiah and Ezra teach us. I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to have to invite you uh, to move out and just bomb someone's house. All right. <laughs>